Equine health is our business, horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here, we will have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the EquiConnect Equine Podcast, brought to you by McKee Panel Equine Services. I am Dr. Kyle Goldie. And I am Karen Fell. And today we have the pleasure of having our guest, Dr. Kate Robinson. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much. Yes, thanks so much for uh, for joining us, Kate. Oh, happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. We were challenged today by by COVID and uh, and uh, social distancing and everything like that. So um, to our listeners, you'll have to apologize for some potential delays and things like that, and perhaps uh, some audio quality issues. We're just doing the best we can, but uh, just theoretically, we're not all supposed to be in the same room. But yeah, so today. The goal of the podcast is to introduce uh, Dr. Kate Robinson, who's the uh, latest veterinarian to join Mickey Pownall uh, Kaladin. So, um, Kate, do you want to give us a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, so I guess I've been with Mickey Pownall now since October. It's been a lovely few months and I'm really happy to be here. Prior to joining Mickey Pownall, I was part of the uh, Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan's equine field service team. So their equine ambulatory division, actually for the entirety of my career. So I was there um, about 11 years. I am a 2009 graduate of St. George's School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, so I did the first three years of my vet schooling in Grenada, West Indies, in the Caribbean. And the way that program works is for your fourth or your final year, uh, they send you out to affiliated and um, ideally accredited veterinary schools around the world. Uh, I'm from Ontario originally, wanted to return to Canada. And so uh, the University of Saskatchewan actually lined up quite well with my interests in large animal and equine medicine. Uh, and so I, I journeyed there from Grenada in January, uh, literally experienced a 60 degree uh, shift in weather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Over a couple of days and finished my, my veterinary school there. So completed my, my four, fourth year, my final year rotations. Uh, it was during that final year of vet school that it really became apparent that staying in equine medicine was what I wanted to do. My original plan had actually been to return to Muskoka, uh, and I figured I would work in a small animal or mixed animal practice in the area. I was lucky enough, though, as I as I came to realize that horses was where it was at for me. An internship actually opened up in the field service division at WCBM there. And I was lucky enough to, to land that position. I spent, oh, I think it was actually 16 months in that position and then rolled into a three-year residency program, again, in equine field service. Uh, and during that three years, I was specializing in equine practice in the ambulatory division there. I obtained my master's of veterinary science um, and I focused on navicular syndrome was uh, and actually the efficacy of acupuncture in treating navicular syndrome was uh, where I focused my research during that time. 
Uh, and then in 2014, after I had finished my residency, was successful in completing my boards. Uh, so I'm a boarded specialist in equine practice uh, through the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. A little different than what we typically think of as far as boarded specialties, whether we're talking about veterinary medicine or human medicine, we typically think about disciplines, right? So you might be a specialist in surgery or internal medicine. Uh, the ABVP uh, focuses on species and the different types of practice uh, rather than a discipline. So that is what I am specialized in, equine practice. As I was wrapping up my residency, a faculty position opened up at WCVM. I was quite enjoying my time there. I had really developed a bit of a passion for teaching uh, over the course of my residency. So I, I applied for the faculty position and was a successful candidate for that again and spent uh, seven years in that position. Uh, I obtained tenure in the spring of 2019, I think it was. And I think just as time has gone by, there's been a little bit more and more of a pull each year to return to Ontario, be a little closer to family. Loved my time in Saskatoon. A lot of people out there became like family. But uh, when I saw the the advertisement for Mickey Pownall, it, it honestly seemed a little bit too good to be true. So I applied and um, here we are. Wow, you've had quite the journey in your career so far. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there was a, there was a good long pause in Saskatoon, but... Yeah, I've been able to see some sights and, and make my way around a little bit of the world, I guess. Absolutely. That's very cool. You you have a lot of letters uh, on your, <laughs> your name, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Sure. That's cool. I wish I had more letters. I've only uh, got three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's my shame. So, uh, Dr. Kate, um, one thing that you mentioned in your intro um, is that uh, your thesis during your internship was on the use of acupuncture to treat navicular syndrome. Uh, can you just uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of your findings? Sure. I think uh, the main takeaway from that research was that there was a trend towards improvement, but unfortunately, we weren't able to definitively prove that acupuncture was helpful um, for navicular. Part of the issue, and unfortunately this is a common theme in equine research, was numbers. It was a clinical trial, so we enrolled horses that were suffering from naturally occurring navicular syndrome. There's not really a way to induce navicular syndrome anyways. So that wasn't, we, we didn't look at a, a model of disease. We were looking at, at true clinical disease. Um, we had hoped to enroll, I think it was about 30 horses was sort of our goal. We unfortunately, because of the limitations, so when we're setting a research project, you know, you have to set inclusion and exclusion criteria. And unfortunately, we, we ran up against a fair number of horses that for a variety of reasons we weren't able to include. So maybe radiographically they also had signs of coffin joint arthritis or laminitis. Uh, maybe they didn't block out quite well enough to a PD nerve block, which was part of our inclusion criteria. 
So a few different reasons for why we may not have been able to include them. So we ended up only having uh, nine horses total split between treatment group and non-treatment group. My supervisor, Dr. Steve Manning, who's certified in acupuncture, um, was obviously overseeing the experiment. He was blinded to the lameness scores of the horses. I was blinded to which treatment group they were in. So they were randomly assigned to either receive acupuncture treatment or not. And I would do serial lameness exams after they had had an acupuncture treatment. Uh, So we were gathering data over time. And essentially, uh, we were using the, the AEP lameness scale as sort of our our guidance there and radiographic findings as well as PD nerve blocks for our our main inclusion criteria. As I said, this is, I'm going to age myself, but uh, this was really before MRI was commonplace uh, for the diagnosis of navicular syndrome. Uh, And we didn't have an MRI at the university at that time when I was doing this project. But suffice to say, using the treatment protocol that we did, because that's another thing that's important to note. We approached uh, these horses from more of a Western medicine perspective. When we think about acupuncture, we can talk about sort of the the Eastern or the Chinese perspective where, and I'm not highly educated in this, so excuse me, but we consider more the, the individual animal that's undergoing treatment and come up with a, a much more individualized treatment plan versus a, a more of a Western approach where we may take sort of a standardized acupuncture treatment program and apply that across multiple animals that have a single diagnosis. And so that's what we did with this project. All of the horses had the same acupuncture treatment and, and we do have to consider that a, a bit of a limitation to our results as well, in that if we took a more Eastern approach and a more individualized acupuncture treatment for each animal, there's a chance that we might have seen more improvement in their lameness. And that's really what we were looking for in this project was, could we improve their lameness scores? We weren't expecting to see any changes in their radiographs, although we did repeat radiographs and the nerve blocks at the end of the treatment period. But suffice to say, we we did see a trend in lameness improving in the treatment group. And I think that there are some ways that we could expand on on that research in the future. To my knowledge, nobody has done that, though. Very cool. That's uh, that's great. Uh, thanks a lot for, for sharing that, Kate. That's super cool. Uh, do you have any uh, special training in acupuncture or spinal manipulation, any of those um, extras? I do not. I am interested in uh, obtaining my spinal manipulation certificate, but have not really had the opportunity um, or the time, I guess, um, with the other commitments in my previous job with teaching and, and the research and administration commitments that were part of that. Yeah, I, I didn't really have the, the time, so I'm hoping that that might be something that I can pursue uh, in my new role here at Mickey Pownell. Very good. Awesome. Thanks. Kate, what would you consider to be your greatest experience thus far being a vet? I think I'm lucky in that I can say there's been a few. In my uh, intro to the vet 
video, I, I talk about a, a horse on the chuck wagon circuit that I actually met on the side of a highway and ended up meeting again um, as he successfully recovered from the problem that I originally got to meet him for. But I think probably I, I would have to say um, the experience that I had about a year ago now in, in April maybe surpasses that one. So I was not on call, um, but this was sort of right on early in, in COVID and the Equine Field Service Division at WCVM had six clinicians um, working as part of it. So our initial response to COVID had been to split into teams of two veterinarians each so that we could attend calls without having to interact with owners and and that kind of thing. Um, so my team was not on call. It was a weekend in, in April, but my colleague had gotten a hold of me, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, to say that she was headed to a down horse that was caught in a fence and could I be on standby because it looked like it might be kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. And I said, yeah, I was available and kind of waited to hear from her. And she arrived on farm and sent me this pretty gnarly photo. The horse was down and unable to rise, but his leg, um, he was a three-year-old warm blood stud colt, his leg had gone through... The, between the gate and the gate post, he had a degloving injury of that left front that was caught and they weren't able to remove it from where it was stuck. So my colleague, Nora, uh, said she was going to knock him out and they were going to cut the gate away from his leg as sort of the starting point and, and could I head out to help run fluids and otherwise help attend to this horse. And she indicated that extra hands might be useful. So I called the colleague that I was actually a part of a team with, and I also hauled my husband out of the house. He occasionally has to join me for these kinds of adventures. And we headed out to this call. Um, when we got there, the horse was under GA. Um, they'd been able to successfully remove the fence from around him and had um, bandaged, cleaned and bandaged the leg um, as best they could. It was a pretty muddy, gross kind of spring day, unfortunately. And there was a lot of mud around him. He had ended up going down right next to a new waterer that was maybe leaking a little bit. And so the next goal was to try and get him out of this mud ice area that he was in so that he had good footing to hopefully stand up and then we could the plan was to get him to the barn and uh, assess the wound a little bit better and, and kind of go from there I believe they tried to drag him once already with the tractor um, it was a smaller tractor they couldn't really get him to move so stepped back and kind of were reassessing the situation as we arrived um, and as it turned out I got around his hind end a little bit better and in the mud and, and just sort of asked, like, where is his left hind leg, right? Because we couldn't really, couldn't really see it. Um, and the assumption had been that it was underneath him. And unfortunately, like, they'd been focusing on the front leg, which is what anybody would have done in that situation. Unfortunately, though, what had happened, he'd actually gone through a sheet of ice that was about, oh, good four inches thick and the trench that had been dug for this new waterer in the fall had been leaking all winter and so his left hind was actually straight 
down in a mud pit sinkhole. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And his stifle was lodged up under this sheet of ice. So now we've got this whole other can of worms to deal with, right? Um, It was probably around zero degrees. Thankfully, it was sunny, but like not ideal conditions to be keeping him under repeated doses of ketamine either. So we sort of naturally split into teams. Nora and her teammate that had been the first on the scene maintained him under GA and kind of protected his head and eyes and that left front leg as the rest of us kind of figured out what to do with the hind end. I got on the phone to the fire department right away because we were pretty close to town and I thought that the Saskatoon Fire Department might be able to respond to something like this and and help us out. Unfortunately, they were not able to do that. We were just outside of city limits um, and they don't respond to those types of calls. So I then put in a phone call to another colleague who has some uh, training in large animal rescue and sent him some some photos and, and video. And he was able to give me some suggestions as to this is what you would do if, with a with a horse. And that involved uh, ideally the use of some slings and some pretty heavy duty equipment um, and larger tractors, which we just did not have available to us. And then he also sent this is what I would do if it was a cow. Um, and that involved getting some ropes around its leg, uh, hind legs, and then under his belly, and then kind of using his right hind leg and the ropes coming back over top of the belly towards the tractor to kind of like leverage and roll him over. With the owner's permission, obviously, that's what we elected to do. As far as systemic health was concerned, he wasn't in a bad place, but he wasn't doing great. um, And he was getting pretty cold. So we didn't think it was in his best interest to keep him under GA, um, waiting for larger equipment to arrive. And there wasn't really a good way on the other side of him to just drag him out and we didn't know what was going to happen to that left stifle if we attempted to drag him out kind of on his left side we were worried that it would get caught on that sheet of ice and be significantly damaged um so this is what we decided to do it was a pretty big team effort obviously Um, we were able to successfully get the ropes around the right hind i'm using some half hitches and whatnot and then underneath his body and attach that to the tractor And really slowly, um, and we had, I think, two people kind of monitoring that left hind so that we could stop if it did seem like it was going to get caught on the the ice at any moment. And so really slowly, we were able to completely roll him over uh, and flip him over onto his other side. And then once we did that, um, we were able to to drag him using the, the same tractor to a drier and safer spot of land. He'd had, oh jeepers, two or three boluses of ketamine at that point to keep him under. I think it was probably close to, it had to be an hour and a half, maybe even two that that we kind of kept him under in order to, you know, safely get him out of the hole. Uh, Thankfully, there was no obvious injury to the left hind once we did get him free of that. And so then it was just warming him up and and waiting for for him to um, recover from the ketamine and he started to get pretty shivery. As I said, it was around zero and, and he was wet and cold. We were doing the best we could to warm him up. And he got into sternal and he just really wasn't making much of an effort uh, to get up. And, and, you know, certainly we were wondering, like, has he tied up in addition to everything else that he's gone through? Or is he just kind of giving up on us? Like he'd, he'd been, you know, it was pretty, pretty rough day as far as rough days go. And 
I truly believe in the the connections that animals have with one another. And honestly, it was just a last ditch effort. But I said he had a buddy that he lived with that had been taken out of the paddock, obviously, as they'd been cutting down fences and vet trucks were being parked around this horse and whatnot. And as a last ditch effort, I just said, you know what, let's let's just bring his buddy in and, and just see uh, if that gives him enough encouragement or whatnot. And and so the gelding that he lives with was brought back in and kept at a safe dif- distance, but close enough that, that the, the stud colt could at least see him and communicate a little bit. And it was pretty cool. Uh, that seemed to be kind of the final push uh, that, that he needed. And so he actually made a couple of good attempts and stood um, within a few minutes of the gelding coming back in to the paddock. It was... Wow, that's amazing. I'm kind of reliving it right now. It was incredible to see this horse stand again, because I really, I didn't know that we were going to get there. And it would have been completely reasonable for that owner to just ask us to euthanize him with, like, in the hole. He was stuck. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, to so he, to see him stand up was just an absolutely incredible experience. Not only from the the veterinary medicine perspective of it, but just like it had been such a team effort. So to be successful in that as well was was pretty cool. And then. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. I, I find so many of those cases are just so exhausting. And in the end, there's a an unfavorable result. You know, it's just the down horse that's been down for a long time. The prognosis is not good. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's an amazing story. Yeah, and he actually walked right onto the trailer. We got him to the hospital, and he had several significant injuries and complications, but he actually did survive. Wow, so cool. Thanks. Good amazing. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Kate, do you have any, uh, are there any particular areas of uh, equine practice that you uh, you really enjoy? I do really enjoy podiatry, although I think I still have a lot to, to learn in that regard. I keep being asked since joining Mickey Pownell, like, what is my, what's my favorite part of, of equine medicine? And I don't know that I have one. Uh, I, I really just enjoy equine practice and all of the different aspects of it, the variety that it provides, the curveballs that can be thrown in your day. Yeah, it's just a really, really cool thing to be a part of, whether, you know, we're talking about bringing a foal into the world or, you know, helping a racehorse to be successful in its career or even just, you know, pointing out some sharp points in a horse's mouth while I'm doing a dental and the owner's never seen that before. And it's it's cool that they get to look inside the mouth. I think every aspect of what we get to do with horses is just really amazing. And, and it's really an honor to be able to work on these, these animals. So I, I truly do love it all. That's great. Awesome, Kate. What's the most recent thing you learned as a veterinarian where you're just like, huh, I, I can't believe I've been practicing for that long and uh, and and I'm just kind of learning this now. That's a bit of a a stumper. Oh, you know what? What's that? This was completely by accident on Tuesday. One of the horses on the at the rehab farm, um we were having a little bit of trouble with their SPL. They're a, a, a case that's uh, there for some eye treatments. and the the portion that's 
was sitting at the eye was fine, but we were actually having some recurrent abscessation up at the attachment site on the forehead. And so we didn't want to completely replace the, the SPL if we didn't have to. So I, I was able to just move it over. But in doing so, unfortunately, there was a little bit of damage to the SPL tubing. So I thought that I was going to have to replace the whole thing because of that. But thankfully, uh, Dr. Dubay walked by at that moment and quickly showed me how to repair an SPL using a catheter cut and then sliding the uh, two new ends of the SPL over top of the catheter. And then I thought for some, some added protection, I would put a little crazy glue around it to keep the ends together. And that worked well, but in doing so, I accidentally glued the SPL to the horse's forehead. <laughs> it was a fortunate accident, though, because it, it glued down right where I wanted to place it. And then I was like, well, Perfect. hey, let's just go with this. And um, it's a much less invasive yeah. way of, of placing those SPLs rather than either like tunneling through the forehead or placing them with sutures. So I think I actually might glue them in the future uh, and, and see how that goes. Nice. So, yeah, I guess... Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I remember I, I from my my previous uh, work in equine practice mm -hmm. and uh, which is all ambulatory and and uh, coming to Mickey Pownell, I hadn't really dealt with SPLs that much. So I remember uh, realizing that you could fix yeah. one with a with a catheter, and it blew yeah. my mind. I was like, oh, this is so easy. <laughs> this is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I, I remember that. It was it was good. Uh, for anybody who doesn't really know what an SPL is, it's called a, it's a subpalpebral lavage system, which is basically, it's a fancy sort of uh, duct system that we install so that um, to, to make it easier to administer eye meds. So it's basically like a little, there's a little silicone foot that's on, that's mounted on the inside of one of the eyelids. And then it goes through the eyelid, the, the piece of tubing goes through the eyelid and up uh, over the forehead and, and down the neck. And then there's just a little port that you can connect a syringe up to and actually squirt the eye meds in. So when you have a, a horse that is mm -hmm. uh, understandably reluctant to have uh, medications administered directly to its eye, you can kind of cheat with this system and uh, you squirt it in way down to its neck level and it ends up in the eye. It's pretty cool, um, but they are notoriously... Uh, finicky. Uh, it's very delicate tubing and, and everything like that. So yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. I never understood why the tubing is so thin and fine because yeah, it's kind of just asking to get broken. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that that, that could be the next million dollar idea is make a uh, more durable <laughs> SPL system. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Kate, I wanted to ask you, um, previously you were an assistant professor. Um, what did this job entail? So in my role as an assistant professor, as I said, I was part of the equine field service team at WCBM. So uh Pretty in that aspect, pretty similar to what I do here at Miki Pownall. I had a truck and I was out attending farm calls about 34 weeks of the year. Um, also, obviously, on call as part of that position. Part of that duty, though, um, would be clinical teaching with our fourth year veterinary students at WCVM. So I would almost always have students on the road with me, teaching them to do the variety of procedures that we do as equine veterinarians day to day. And then in addition to that, I taught 
in the other three years of the veterinary program as well. So that was um, actually something I really loved, that, the fact that I got to teach in all four years because not all faculty gets to do that. So that was pretty neat. So I would have lectures or labs uh, to be teaching, not on a particularly regular schedule, um, but I was pretty busy with the teaching aspect of my job. Uh, in addition, also did some research and supervised graduate students. Kind of continued on actually in the navicular syndrome world with my first graduate student um, and her project, uh, no pun intended, focused on uh, efficacy of extracorporeal shockwave therapy and naturally occurring navicular syndrome. Uh, and we did use MRI as part of that project. So looking at before and after and, and response to treatment there. Um, I've been involved in a variety of other research projects from uh, equine metabolic syndrome type work to laminitis in the Sable Island ponies. Um, I've got, I've got a, I'm on a paper, a couple of papers actually coming out, um, looking at, uh, radiology safety in equine veterinarians. So had, uh, my finger in a lot of things in the research pot, um, a lot of collaborative work, which is really cool. And then certainly some administrative duties. I guess one of my favorite administrative duties, if I can put it that way, uh, for the last, uh, I think it was about two years, I was in charge of the teaching horse herd, uh, the management of the teaching horse herd at the, the college. So we keep about 30 horses um, for teaching a variety of different skills to students. Might be as simple as learning how to put on a, a halter because some of them have never done that before, um, all the way up to learning how to pass nasogastric tubes for colics and uh, palpate reproductive tracts in mares and that kind of thing. And so I was just uh, kind of in charge of the general well-being and health of, of those 30 horses, but uh, got to know them all pretty well in that time. And they're a pretty, pretty fun herd. So that was, that was kind of neat to have that as part of my role there. And I, I really did enjoy that. Absolutely. What a cool experience to have so many different things going on. Thanks. Yeah, it, it was, it was pretty cool. I was pretty lucky in my job there. I quite enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds really fascinating. How do you feel your experience as an assistant professor will benefit you at McKee Panel? Well, I think it'll benefit me in, I, I hope anyways, in my ability to educate clients and uh, new staff, um, particularly, uh, you know, new veterinary assistants and, and techs. And even, you know, in, in mentoring young veterinarians that we might hire, um, simply because that's a lot of, you know, what my role was previously, and, and I enjoy doing that. I think, uh, and again, I hope uh, I'm pretty good at explaining things maybe in simpler terms. So again, that, that bit of client education coming in there. So whether it's over the phone or whether we're addressing uh, a problem on farm, I, I hope I'm able to um, maybe get some 
more difficult concepts across to to owners because of that that teaching background that I that I do have. Absolutely, and we really look forward to uh, having you work with us. Yeah, I see that as a real asset, um, and uh, obviously, you're a very patient person. So, so Kate, after having practiced in in two very distinct regions of Canada, Saskatchewan versus Ontario. Can you make any uh, observations of differences you've observed in in terms of practicing in the two different places? Honestly, in terms of practicing, there hasn't been much difference. Um, And I I think that's certainly part of what attracted me to McKee Pownall was the fact that the practice as a whole has very high practice standards, uh, very similar to um, what I was used to in Saskatchewan as far as approach to, you know, really any kind of case or procedure. So from that aspect of it, uh, I don't think there's been too much really different. Um, certainly working on different types of horses. I saw a variety of horses in Saskatchewan, but some of my main uh, clients to the bigger facilities that I worked at were actually Arabian breeding farms. And I've only seen the odd uh, Arabian here and there in my my travels since coming to Ontario. And certainly worked on a lot of quarter horses and paints and, and related breeds out in Saskatchewan. Um, a lot more of the Western disciplines than I've seen so far here. As far as actually practicing veterinary medicine not too much different no cool Cool. yeah yeah just curious i've got a question um and i i love this question just because i think it's so unique um what is something that you're great at that we don't know about i just feel like it will give us a little bit of an insight into you oh boy good question i don't know that i'm actually great at anything so humble well (laughs) (laughs) I guess the older I've gotten, this has become, I guess, more and more of a secret. It's almost a past life now. Um, so I was uh, once a, a pretty competitive junior golfer, um, and I actually attended undergrad on a golf scholarship. No way. That's pretty cool. Oh, thanks. Attended St. Francis University in Pennsylvania. At the time, it was the smallest Division One school in the country is kind of cool um and we were we were pretty decent uh we made it to ncaa regionals three of my four years there wow yeah thanks uh i i won individual conference championship my i believe it was my junior year so congratulations that's impressive oh thanks it's we need to have a golf day decades ago yeah that would be fun yeah, I, I'm I'm good for about uh, one to two drives per year, and then my my golf uh, my golf swing goes goes downhill after that. Fair. So we'll just play like uh, some kind of a, a scramble or something where you don't have to hit it that often. Perfect. Perfect. I'm good for two holes. I'm not good at golfing at all, but I can look pretty good. So I'll uh, I'll get the attire down pat. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I mean, a lot of golf, uh, especially at this age and trying to squeeze it in as a as a horse vet driving the cart and drinking a beer is is a good part of it too karen (laughs) well thank you that makes me feel a lot better (laughs) awesome that's so cool 
Well, um, thanks everybody for listening to uh, our episode today, and uh, and thanks for taking the time to to get to know Dr. Kate. Hopefully, um, you see her in her travels, but uh, for for good reasons, not bad ones, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. And uh, we look forward to uh, anyone's ideas or for topics, please feel free to send them in to us and let us know what you want to hear about. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, Kate. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people. Not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.